You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. So I'm talking today with an old friend, Chris Mayers, the investment director at the Bonner Family Office. And um, yeah, it's good to catch up again, Chris. Yeah, good to catch up with you. It's been a while since we last chatted and there's a couple of things that I wanted to catch up with you on. So, you know, just I guess for listeners' benefit, you're a deep value investor and, you know, you and I have spoken about this before. You don't tend to pay too much attention to where the S&P is at or, you know, where the overall PE on the Dow is and so forth. So perhaps you could just give listeners a synopsis of how it is that you go about allocating capital or how you go about identifying investment opportunities. Sure. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call myself a deep value investor. I know I started out that way uh, in the old Graham and Dodd style, you know, the sort of philosophy that Ben Graham and David Dodd wrote about in their book, security analysis, uh, where you buy things that are statistically cheap. But I'd say my journey has kind of probably been similar to, similar to many value investors, including Buffett himself. And that uh, over time, you start to learn or appreciate more the power of compounding and the power of being able to sit with the shares of a really good business for a long period of time. So over time, uh, I'm, I'm kind of more, uh, more in the quality spectrum area. I'm not going to be the guy who buys some, you know, burned out shipping company because it trades below, you know, liquidation value or... Uh, you know, likes to buy some uh, busted up oil company that's, you know, has some debt issues that it's fighting through or something like that. Uh, I'm looking more for a quality asset, quality business, and I would define quality by things such as uh, the profit margins and the return on capital in particular that that business earns and the people who are in control. Capital allocation is really, it's really the whole shebang when you're running a company. Uh, you can take a great business and it can be a horrible stock if the people running it blow the money on acquisitions or fancy headquarters and, you know, all kinds of stuff that they can blow money on. And, uh, but you can take a pretty decent business and do really well if that, if the cash that that business throws off is allocated intelligently. So I'd, I'd see myself in that line. I, I use the, I use an acronym a lot, CODE, C-O-D-E. So I want to buy things that are cheap. That's the C. O is for owner operators. I like to invest in uh, businesses where the people in control have skin in the game. Disclosures, D is for disclosures. So it's got to be something that I feel like I can understand. And E is for excellent financial condition, which you know, I don't like to take balance sheet risk. So those are the, of the key things I look for and how, how I look at allocating capital. And, you know, most, almost all my investing experience over the last 25 years or so has really been in public markets. That's why, where I uh, specialize. So I'm just, as you talk, I'm just thinking, so, you know, we know that markets go through cycles, the business cycle being the most commonly understood and observed, which is typically between five and 10 years. So within the cycle it's typical for sectors themselves to, wane in um, in and out are there any 
particular sectors that you're interested in right now? Because um, presumably you're looking at, you know, the companies that you've just described um, and you find yeah. abundance of one over the other depending on yeah. the sectors. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. And I think, uh, I think the answer to that is yes and no. I mean, and there's some sectors I am more interested in because they seem to be depressed perhaps temporarily. So I've been interested in looking at some of the luxury end companies, retailers. You know, we have a couple, we have a couple where the stock prices have been cut in half uh, over a two year period of time. I uh, haven't done much in energy or the real deep cyclical stuff yet. We've played around with uh, trying to figure out media um, that's something that's probably not necessarily a, a cyclical change. More of there are big secular changes going on, long-term changes, different change, changing the industry about how people consume media, how they watch television, how they watch ads, how they how they get this stuff. But we really haven't figured anything out there or done anything in that space. The other thing is that beyond the normal sort of business cycle things, uh, I think we're in an interesting market in the sense that. Uh, the, the, the rise of passive investing has really changed the landscape. And so there are a number of you know, large companies, when you're looking at the shareholder base, the top 10 shareholders might be six or seven or the largest shareholders are just uh, are passive investors. People run index funds or ETFs. Yeah. And, the and so that's just to, just to yeah. add to that is the increasingly basically algo driven or robo traders. And so robo traders, it's even worse because uh, in addition to the ETS and index funds, then there's a whole bunch of money managers who are basically aping, you know, their closet indexers. So they own, they own many of the same stocks, the stocks they own simply because they're in indexes. So, so you have a wide disparity in some cases between the valuations of companies that are in these indexes uh, or in these uh, exchange trade funds and those that aren't that that's been something that's very uh, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's been exacerbated over the last decade, at least. Maybe not such a bad thing for most investors uh, who aren't into it to put their money in, 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 in an index fund, but it's like anything. It's uh, it's like anything in finance and you've, you know, we've seen so many examples of it is something that maybe starts out as a good idea, then gets kind of gets out of hand and then becomes a bad idea. <laughs> so, I think we're beyond the tipping point with the passive investing. So you you kind of feel that there's almost like a bubble in passive investing. Yeah, although I think it could go on for a long long time. I I read a couple of weeks ago that the estimate is that a third of assets are passive. But when they but the, again, like we were talking about, it's a hard thing to measure because you can just look at the passive funds. But then there are also funds that claim to be actively managed that are really just closet indexes, indexers. So I have a feeling that the passive number is a lot higher. I don't know. Maybe if the, even if the number is half, is I I'd imagine there's still room to go. I mean, you see a lot of hedge funds closing and active managers struggling. I mean, anecdotally, what was it? Perry Capital closed their fund couple weeks ago and they were they were in the business for what 20 plus years or something like that so uh it's definitely affecting the active money management world everyone's got fee compression everyone deals with these problems about assets flowing from active to passive it's interesting because um, one of the things then i've talked to a bunch of 
active, so-called active money managers is increasingly they're in the space where in order to stay alive, they're basically doing what you'd suggested before, which is mimicking indexes and being closet ETF buyers, essentially, just in order to stay alive, right? And so sure. actually decreasing risk in their portfolios and not necessarily because they don't want to get more alpha, but just the ability to stay alive has become endangered. And as such, they're choosing that methodology is to just go after the indexes and go after the ETFs to try and um, sort of weather the storm, so to speak. Yeah. So I think it's yeah. a it's a self reinforcing cycle. Sure, and that's why I said I don't know where I don't know where it ends. I mean, these things can always go on, you know, far longer than you think is possible. But you know, we've got a whole bunch of large caps that are not growing and trade for you know twenty to twenty five times earnings. And they're basically trading like bond proxies. You know, they're trading where they are because they yield 3% or something. Yeah, that's so. something that I, I've discussed with quite a few guys is increasingly you've got a lot of assets which are trading like bonds because of the hunt for yield, right? So you've got people who are going further down the risk curve and they're buying, you know, we were looking at banks, for example, um, Australian banks, which pay fairly decent dividends. Their balance sheets look pretty shaky, but then you realize that there's a lot of people who are buying them because they're producing a dividend and they're treating that dividend like you would a coupon or a bond. But Mm -hmm. what's the volatility of an equity? It's probably five, seven times that of a bond, depending on what bonds you're buying and what equities you're buying. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a completely different animal that you're buying, buying it for the yield, but you're basically ignoring the volatility that exists in that inherent equity. And, there's more and more people doing that. So like you say, things can go on for longer than one can anticipate, but it typically, like you said, it, what can be a, a decent idea can um, eventually become quite a bad idea. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is not, they're not just ignoring the volatility. They're ignoring the, they're ignoring the fact that that coupon, that yield is endangered in the sense that the company that's paying it has over a period of years become far more leveraged. And that payout represents uh, an increasingly large share of overall earnings. I mean, the S&P 500 as a whole, I believe, paid out all of its earnings in dividends and buybacks last year. So you're running the thing tight as a drum already, and they're leveraged. So, um, yeah, I mean, these are the kind of things that the next next turn in the cycle will will unwind. But so I'm not, you know, I'm avoiding those kinds of things. But even so, I mean, this is a strange market in another way in that. You know, you, you ask a good question to start, which is what kind of sectors are, seem appealing. And I can remember for years and years, you know, being in this business that usually you have a definite answer. You'd say, oh, well, such and such, you know, oil stocks are cheap or bank stocks are cheap or whatever it was. And I don't know, this time it feels different. It feels harder to say what's cheap and what isn't. So it's become more of a sort of patchy market. And I think, you know, even when I look at the family office portfolio, it sort of reflects it. We've got We've got an eclectic mix of securities. We've got, you know, a Japanese pharmaceutical company. We've got a Swiss luxury com- goods company. We've got a French media company. We've got, you know, a large U.S. insurer conglomerate. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just a it's just a hodgepodge of, of things that um, you wouldn't necessarily ca- characterize thematically by industry, but but they do connect thematically. In other ways, and, and for example, they all have 
super strong balance sheets, cash rich balance sheets. They all have, you know, insiders at the helm own a lot of stock and they all have businesses that generate good returns on their equity. So these are the kinds of predictive qualities that I look for that usually, usually mean you're going to do pretty well as an investor over the years. And so you, it's essentially what you're saying is that you're geographically dispersed, but the commonality is in terms of the actual financials of the company as opposed to geographic location or even sector. Yes, and I, I would even say that the, some of the financial characteristics of these businesses are why they're, are why they are, mm, not maybe not maybe ignored is too strong a word, but why they're relatively neglected or why they seem to be in the penalty box, and that is because we're in a market now that rewards people automatically for buying back stock and, you know, uh, raising your dividend and um, these kind of the businesses that I've that we own here that we that I'm telling you about are ones where they're think more counter cyclically. So they're accumulating cash now uh, or selling assets now in the case of at least a few. Um, but I will assure you that when we have a turn that they'll be putting that cash to work. So it's the, it's a good example of the difference between a sort of hired gun CEO type where, you know, they're running it because they're running it because they're running it on the mainstream views of the day versus an owner who's thinking longer term and thinking more opportunistically about, hey, you know, markets are elevated right now. Asset prices are high. I'm going to accumulate some cash here. I'm not going to buy back my own stock either. Um, we'll wait. And the market, especially you can read, I read a lot of sell side stuff just to kind of gauge, the, get a feel for the consensus. And they will penalize a company for holding excess cash because that excess cash drives down return on return on equity, for example. You have a bunch of cash that you're earning nothing on that drags down the potential return on that equity for a little while. Sure it does, but there's optionality in it. Absolutely. That's exactly when you think like an investor thinks. That's how I would think about it. Well, there's optionality in the cash. You know? Yeah. So it's anyway, funny because I was talking with a business partner of mine looking at a number of businesses. And really, I guess if I was going to sum it up in one thing, it's intergenerational wealth. And so you've got a business owner that, is looking at this saying, you know what, even if I, you know, go into a box in the next 20 years or 15 years, this is something that my kids should be having, right? And so they, then, then it makes a whole lot of sense to hold the cash and have optionality. When you're that hired gun CEO and you've got an option pool that is expiring in two years' time, the, the justification to actually buy back stock or increase dividends in order to pull more equity in, under the covers is it's just too hard to ignore um, because in 10, 15, 20 years time, you might not be that CEO of the company anymore. You'll be on to other, the other things. And so that's quite a critical component that you mentioned there. And I don't think at the moment there's, there's this massive drive for yield and drive for return, I guess. And, and, you know, when I say yield, it's basically investors looking again, treating equities, like bonds, um, in fact, treating a lot of commodity, a lot of assets um, as yield instruments, which is pretty frightening. And one of the things that we've been investigating this is a little bit of a sidetrack, Chris, but I think it points it points to the sort of overall market zeitgeist, if you will, is that in looking into um, short interest on on um, volatility ETFs. 
And what a lot of these guys have done is they're selling volatility in order to pick up yield, right? So you can create a structured product, a structured instrument, sell volatility because you can pick up a, a decent yield on it, right? Yeah. Um, and that's now being treated like a bond, but it's not in any way, shape or form at all like a bond. And that's, that's pretty scary. But essentially, you've got a lot of market participants that are treating assets more like, like yield instruments because that's what they're looking for. So it's a little bit like if you, you know, if you have a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail, um, the old analogy. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think, where we're at in the market. And so there's probably a big, a decent gap of in the market, really, that opens up for your kind of investment opportunities, which is to say that people are not interested in those companies which are not buying back stock, which are, which are holding cash, which are not paying out dividends, which basically are looking at intergenerational wealth and they're not being priced because they're not producing what, what the other competitors are producing. That's right. And the other interesting thing about this is that uh, this gets ties into the passive investing is that when you build an S&P index fund or any index fund, the way these funds define shares outstanding or liquidity is that they adjust for insider ownership. So we'll give you an extreme example. We have two companies, both worth about a billion dollars, but company A, the insiders don't own any of it. Company B, the insiders own half of it. Uh, for purposes of the index, the company A, where the insiders don't own any of it, will get double weighting. In other words, company B, because half of the ownership is, is in insiders' hands, it will be weighted only half as much. In other words, they take out the insider ownership, which is almost it's, perverse. So. <laughs> completely asked backward. It should be the other way around. Of course. Yeah. And in fact, if the insiders were to increase their percentage ownership of the, of the company, then the index would decrease its weight. And if they sell it so that they're, they own less of it, the index would increase its weight. That's also happening at the margin. And so you find, you'll find companies that in the same industry, but one will be severely underweighted in the popular ETF of its industry because the insiders own a lot of it. <laughs> Interesting. It's kind of perverse outcome of, you know, the passive investing idea sounds very good and um, it, it has a lot of merits, but and then when you practically go to implement it, there's a lot of problems, you know, because these, Funds, when they build these things, they don't want to be caught with stuff that's a liquid. So there's another way, another way for you to find ideas, which is always to go for the things that are somewhat a liquid and keeps out some of the biggest money sometimes. Well, again, it comes back to that time horizon. If you're looking for intergenerational wealth, then liquidity isn't that big an issue. Sure, no. Whereas if you're looking or, for liquidity over the next 6 to 12 months, you, you you get pushed further into a different asset class almost. Uh, sure. And that also ties in with volatility, right? If you're absolutely you got a 10, ten year time rise and you don't necessarily care about your month to month volatility. But if you need the money in six months, volatility is very important. Exactly. If there's been a rise of low volatility ETFs. I mean, those things have you know come out of nowhere to suddenly have, you know, billions. <laughs> so Well that's that's exactly it. So, you know, as I mentioned before, where you've got a lot of guys who it look as the old put writing strategy, right? So you yeah, can buy right. puts to pick up yield, and that works until it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. So that's essentially all of those short volatility ETFs that are coming into the market. Now, I haven't, I haven't managed to get conclusive evidence on this, but one gentleman that I spoke to in New York said that 
these are being packaged up as structured instruments and being sold to um, you know, mutual funds and, and the likes. And if that's the mm-hmm. case, it makes a lot of sense because what you've got is the, the end buyer of these things does not understand what they're actually buying, which is typical yeah. of products, is that you're getting sold an instrument that you look at and the way that they're going to sell it, presumably, and I haven't, again, I haven't validated this, but the way that you would sell it is you'd say there isn't a risk because look at the liquidity right? And there will be a lot of liquidity in those uh, futures, essentially in the futures contracts, there's going to be a lot of liquidity, but there is now. But as you know, if you get some sort of left field black swan type of event, that liquidity dries up because it's, it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle going the other way. <clears throat> and so liquidity, when you need it, doesn't exist, becomes a no good that's market. A- yeah, that's a really good point. That's the other, that's another uh, thing is that uh, liquidity is kind of illusory, right? And when it's here, it's here for now, and then goes away when we need it. Uh, Two thousand eight was a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. just evaporated. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, you've just been to Jim Grant's get together over there in New York. Were there any particular insightful takeaways that you got out of that? Well, I'd say one of my favorite uh, presentations was Mark Cahodes, who's a pretty well-known short seller, I guess. Yep. And uh, he was very entertaining as short sellers often are because they uncover all these ridiculous, absurd things that people do. Yeah, he's very focused um, on Vancouver and Canada and the real estate markets. Uh, thing. Uh, oh man. He's just hammering away at Canada. He had, uh, well, he, 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 um, for a grants conference, he, he set some records. I think he, he dropped more F bombs than anyone has ever had, probably <laughs> had ever been dropped at a grants conference ever, including one MF bomb, which is, mm, I think grants conference will never be the same. <laughs> he also, uh, he also set a record for handouts. He had, I have it here right right now is a 87 double sided pages on home capital group. Why that's a short. And he's got, Another huge thing on here, Canadian housing on the ropes. And this is another fat report. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, he's, it's just interesting listening to short sellers because you, you get to you learn about what kind of things you don't want. You know, the overhyped CEOs, the the manner in which companies sort of hide things, the way they promote promote themselves. So. Uh, I mean, that, that, that was just very entertaining. <laughs> the other guys were there is, um, you know, the Hoisington, Lacey Hunt, who's the chief economist for Hoisington was there. And for listeners who don't know, Van Hoisington's investment management company has been basically calling for lower rates for a long time. And they probably have one of the greatest business models ever in that they have bought treasuries and not sold them. <laughs> right. So <laughs> they've been paid very well for many, many, many years buying treasuries and holding them. And it's good just because he's, you know, so contrarian in a, about it. And um, you have to give them credit. They've been right for a long time, but he's, he delivered a presentation basically called uh, large budget deficits, high levels of government debt, a force for lower rates. So there you go. One of the leading uh, interest rate seers thinks that the low on treasury yields is still not in. <laughs> well, I think on a relative basis, that could be correct. If you look at what, you know, look, we, all, we always make a decision based on relativity, right? You and I, yeah. many, many years ago when we walked into the bar and we looked around at the girls, we picked the one that looked best relative to all the others, right? 
necessarily picking the best girl in the world. You're just picking the best one in the bar at the time. And that's if you look at European rates and if you look at Japanese rates, and then it's certainly not that difficult to make a, make a judgment call that treasuries are undervalued. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's right. So, so something else that I, because I just sent to um, one of my guys yesterday <clears throat> to Iran, you and I, a bunch of handful of other guys have talked about heading out to Iran right about now, actually. Um, and for a whole lot of reasons, we've not managed to pull it together. We've both been super busy and we haven't done it. Is that something that you still are looking at at all? What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I mean, I've always liked the kind of frontier market uh, investing story just as something almost like a hobby interest. Yeah. Cause I can't say that I've made any money myself seriously or, uh, you know, I just don't know that I've had tremendous success anywhere in frontier investing, but I like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So am I interested? Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in always these kind of little markets that come out of nowhere and, and um, you know, how they, how they, what potential opportunities there might be. And I haven't done much of that in a while uh, because well, partially the family office is focused on larger cap names. I've been focused on the equity portfolio, but um, actually uh, Bill, Bill Bonner who's the head of the family office and owns Agora, the Agora publishing empire. He, uh, he did want me to check out Cypress some time ago. He, he's been there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that market has been beaten heck. So there, I guess there is some, uh, you know, there's some appetite to do something in a bizarre market like that. Um, sort of big contrarian place. Yeah, exactly. I guess, you know, the problem with that, with that one thing that I've learned over time is, you know, I used to think that if you got the macro right on a story like that, you would, you'd probably do okay. And, you know, we both probably had experiences in frontier emerging markets where the macro just looked fantastic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that didn't, maybe didn't pan out or maybe it did pan out in other cases, but, well, executing think, on it is 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 the the most difficult part. It's finding that uh, that big macro trend can be that's that's just a little bit of, little bit of elbow grease and work, right? But yeah, that's right. That's, that's, how, that's what I was going to say. Is that, without getting run over, is that's the challenging thing. Yeah. And in fact, you know that's really true of investing everywhere, almost really. But it, you have to be in the right vehicle, the right incentives. All those things have to work out. Well, typically and, uh, what you have is the pool of assets that you have, the uh, pool of opportunities that you have are more limited in those markets. Whereas if 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 you took a macro trend, I know we were just talking about ETFs, right? You could take a macro trend and if you bought an ETF and that would be macro trend over you know, 20, 30 years, you'll probably be fine. Yeah, or you know, sometimes you you might be macro right and still get still get it wrong. Like you could, I'm thinking of gold stock investors, for example. You could have been dead right about gold being up over the last six seven years, but if you were in any sort of gold ETF, you most likely got smoked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So well, why is that? Well, I mean, a lot of discussion about why gold stocks didn't or haven't delivered. But I mean, part of it is that. Um, you know, the incentives for those companies was not aligned properly. And so they wound up raising a lot of money and pouring a lot of money back in the ground. Uh, took on a lot of debt, issued a lot of shares. So it's hard for the individual shareholder to make, make any money. 
Yeah, People I mean, made a lot of money in this gold gold market have been the insiders and their bankers. Yeah, the gold market's a funny one because it's actually one of the most corrupt markets out there in that when when times are good, these guys issue shares faster than central bankers um, institute quantitative easing. I mean, they, they, they're terrible. And so, you know, the share count can They're, out there like you know, confetti. Shares like Absolutely. So you can have a gold price that goes up 10, 20, 30, 40%, even 50%. But if the share count on your overall stocks is going up 100, 200%, you're getting diluted anyways. And, and that's, you know, that's often an issue with a lot of those companies because I don't know what it is that attracts particular people to that sector, but it does seem to be one which has a lot of, a lot of shenanigans going on. And I guess the part of the reason is because you do have a couple of anomalies that come out of it, and those anomalies are phenomenal. You know, you can have companies that go 100, 200 X, right? And sure. everybody gets excited by that. It's a little bit like the tech boom, right? Everybody looks around and they go, oh, you know, what's the next Facebook? When in reality, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, 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 the possibility of actually identifying the next Facebook is run about the same possibility of identifying um, a piece of sand on the beach, right. sand on the beach. And so that's, but that's human nature at work. Speaking of human nature and, you know, I almost hate to ask this almost, but Chris, what the heck is going on with that clown show over there in the presidential race? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's quite a show, man. <laughs> it's reality TV live. It is. Uh, I, I can't stomach it, really. I mean, I didn't watch any of the second debate. I just don't know how, uh, you know, well, I guess it's a long story about how I got into this situation, but Seems a bit I don't know. I mean, I've, I've gotten questions from readers, and I don't haven't yet put together any sort of answer, and, and people want to know, well, you know, what what's at stake, really, in the election? And my first gut reaction is to say not much, because... I mean, from the standpoint of an investor, I don't know that it changes that much. Um, but um, short term, um, we could have something like a Brexit moment. I don't know. Yeah. If you have a if you had a surprise win by uh, by Trump, maybe maybe you're going to have some some real volatility around the, around that event. No, I mean, I, I I don't think anybody wins, regardless of who gets in power. That's my own, my own take on it. I like uh, being what what H. L. Mencken used to say. He's called himself the permanent opposition. <laughs> so whoever whoever holds the office, I'm against them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George Collin had some similar take on um, on voting for presidents. I think he said something along the lines of, you know, there's the common rhetoric, which is if you don't vote, then you can't complain. He's all on the contrary. If, um, if I uh, if I don't vote, then I have the right to complain. Something along those lines. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that doesn't seem to be priced quite correct at the moment is volatility. And you know, even if the should we say the standing status quo gets in, I think that still volatility is not really priced necessarily right. So yeah, you know, there's there's the option for things to. Um, things to go a little bit astray. And then I guess that comes back to what we began this discussion with, which is that intergenerational wealth. If you've got a company that has a phenomenal balance sheet, that has a lot of cash, that has that cash as optionality, then 
they'll be the ones in a position at some point because this market, you know, market cycle, I always, they always cycle. Um, and those will be the ones that will be not only able to weather the storm, but be able to pick up market share during that phase. And so that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, for that portion of your portfolio where you don't want to be putting capital at risk, you want to be slowly compounding it and building that long-term intergenerational wealth, then that's what you want to be doing. So, Yeah, it's just kind of the way I'm managing uh, my personal balance as well. You know, you get cash and you, you want to be, you want to have cash when the opportunities come along. Well, Chris, it's been, as always, a, a pleasure. And I thank you for your time. And um, next time, let's make sure that we actually get ourselves onto a plane and go and check out some new place that's got some. Yeah, that would be fun. Let's go check out a new market. All right. Take care and we'll be in touch soon. All right, man. Good talking to you. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at. Thank you.